Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, you're listening to Money Talks on Economist Radio, our weekly podcast on the markets, the economy, and the world of business. I'm Simon Long, an editor at The Economist. And coming up on today's show, banks have entered the corona crisis in better health than the global financial one. But how sick might they get? You know, there's a real risk these programmes not working as advertised causes a lot of resentment and that banks get a lot of the blame. Nobel laureate Joseph Stiglitz on how to help emerging economies hit doubly hard by the pandemic. Uh, the United States, you just go ahead and overnight increase spending by 10% of GDP. Emerging markets can't do that. And why the magic's fading for unicorns. It was all about growth, growth at all costs. Who gives a fig about profits? And that really has shifted in a matter of weeks. The threat of a new financial crisis looms over the global economy and it's causing worries through the banking system. In his letter to shareholders, Jamie Dimon from JP Morgan Chase says this is a crisis the likes of which banks have never seen before. But unlike the global financial crisis of 2007 to 2009, this time the blame lies not with money men, but with a microbe. Today, banks are in a much stronger position. Could they even, in fact, be part of the solution? Or will they falter under the uncertainty caused by the pandemic? Matthew Valencia is an editor at The Economist. Matthew, how have banks been responding to this crisis? In terms of the various business lines, investment banking and capital markets was roaring in the first quarter. Um, You saw a spike in activity and, and profits which is what you quite often see when there's increased volatility, you know, in the early part of a crisis. But that's likely to tail off very quickly as things get worse. And then in lending, yes, banks have pulled back in some businesses, for sure. But they've also done a lot more lending in certain areas. And one reason is that they've been forced to because they have commitments to offer credit lines. Uh, You know, in America, for instance, we've seen In March alone, $200 billion of drawdowns by companies of credit lines from banks. And that was after, in January and February, nothing at all, or pretty much nothing. And then we've seen banks, in some cases, you know, doing quite a lot of new lending. Uh, JP Morgan Chase this week said that uh, it had offered, in March alone, $25 billion in new money to to clients, presumably to big corporate clients. They didn't say who, but I imagine it was to big companies. So are the responses different more by country, as it were, or by type of business? Is it that the investment banks are responding differently from big commercial banks or or is it different national responses? The investment banks are responding differently. Of course, some of the big banks are 
you know, big commercial banks and big investment banks. I think one striking difference in terms of national approach is, you know, if you look at the views and the actions of, of you know, regulators and supervisors and how banks are responding to those. In Europe, regulators have been, you know, nudging or in some cases ordering banks to strengthen their defences against the impact of COVID-19 by, for instance, you know, freezing payouts to shareholders and the pay of highly paid staff, so-called risk takers. In Britain, for instance, you've seen the big banks, in some cases, clearly sort of under duress, withholding billions, I think, eight billion pounds worth of dividends. In fact, some investors in the case of HSBC, some investors in Asia have threatened legal action over that because they're very unhappy about not getting not getting their money. But, you know, regulators say that this is precautionary. At this point, they're saying that it's not that we think banks are going to have overwhelming losses. It's not that we think that they're going to be engulfed with bad debts, but, but we want to make sure that they can weather the storm. So if banks are under pressure not to pay dividends to investors and not to pay big bonuses or big pay packets to their highly paid traders, how much trouble are they facing in America, for example? The banks in America are generally in better shape. I mean, the American authorities were quicker after the last crisis to get banks back on an even keel. And I think over the past decade or so, the American banks have by and large, being the leaders of the pack when it comes to financial strength. It's interesting, the American banks have not followed uh, the Europeans on dividends. They have suspended share buybacks, which generally form a bigger part of their payouts to shareholders than dividends do in America, not so much in Europe. But, you know, if you look at JP Morgan Chase, which is the biggest and, as many see it, the strongest of the, the big American banks, they say it's possible that they may have to consider cutting their dividend for the first time ever. It would be the first time ever. They didn't do it during the the mortgage crisis of just over a decade ago. But Jamie Dimon said in his letter to shareholders, it's a possibility. And I guess around the world, the big contrast with the global financial crisis is that back then, governments were bailing banks out. This time, they seem to be looking to banks as as a way to salvation, using them as the delivery mechanism for all this vast fiscal push that they're putting into the economy. That's right. It's strange, really, that, you know, when you look back to the last crisis, banks were very much the problem. They were the root cause. They'd overextended themselves horribly, and particularly on mortgages and mortgage-related securities, and paid a big price. This time, they're being cast as, you know, potentially the heroes, part of the solution. But there are risks in, in their involvement with these government programmes. I mean, they're being, they're being asked to essentially be conduits for government loans, grants and aid to companies, to individuals. And there are all sorts of risks involved in that. I mean, one is reputational risk, because if they get blamed for money not reaching companies that want it, that could be a real problem for them. And Banks have been struggling in some countries, for instance, in the United States and in Britain, to deal with the confusing and sort of contradictory rules that come with these programmes. They've had a flood of loan applications that in some cases they can't process quickly enough. It's very difficult, and that's partly because these programmes are being designed on the hoof. I think in America, as things stand, something like only 1% to 2% of the aid package that was announced some time back for small companies has been dispersed and things aren't looking much better in Britain. So, you know, there's a real risk that that these, you know, these programmes not working as advertised causes 
a lot of resentment among you know small companies, um, individuals who who've got debts on credit cards and mortgages, and that banks get a lot of the blame. From what you're saying, Matthew, it sounds as if banks are in far better shape generally than they were at the time of the global financial crisis to weather it. But from what you're just saying, if this goes on for months, for years, how resilient are they really? Well, they are in better shape coming into this crisis. You know, lessons were learned from the last one. You know, going into the mortgage crisis in 2007, 8, 9, they had wafer-thin capital. And, um, you know, this time they don't. Um, capital cushions have been have been plumped up. Liquidity as well. You know, there were funding runs on many large banks um, in the last crisis. They were over-reliant on short-term funding. That's been dealt with as well. And it, looking at this time around, the early evidence suggests that markets are holding up pretty well, albeit obviously with a huge amount of help from central banks and governments, but that a lot of the liquidity risks have been pushed from banks to capital markets. There is some, some of that risk sort of coming back to banks, so-called reintermediation as banks, for instance, take on some of the risk that was sitting in funds that they owned. But by and large, they're in much better shape than they were coming into this. But, you know, having said that, this crisis is different from the last one. It's, um, it's much deeper uh, as, as things stand. It's hard to know how long it's going to go on. The optimists, of course, say we're going to have a very deep fall in GDP, but perhaps only a short one. Unemployment will spike for a while and then economies will recover. Whereas, of course, after the, uh, the last crisis, it took years and years for economies to recover. These are huge unknowns and, and we just have to see how things play out. Matthew, thank you very much. Thanks, Simon. You can read more from Matthew in the forthcoming edition of The Economist. Try a subscription at economist.com slash radio offer for 12 issues for $12 or £12. In many emerging markets, lockdowns have been just as stringent as those paralysing the rich world, and some much more harshly enforced. In India, videos have captured police beating anyone they catch on the roads, including even doctors trying to reach hospitals and people looking for food. But the economic risks these countries face are even bigger than those confronting wealthy nations. Emerging economies tend to be uh, more labour-intensive than advanced countries. Uh, The social distancing, therefore, probably has an even worse effect on economies in emerging markets than it does uh, in advanced countries. Simon Cox is our emerging markets editor based in Hong Kong. There are fewer bits of the economy that can survive working remotely. You discover the importance of all sorts of people who really stitch uh, the economies together who might otherwise go unnoticed. Now, in the rich world, we've seen governments intervene quite spectacularly in some cases to support people through fiscal packages and central banks slashing interest rates. Are emerging market economies able to produce anything like that sort of support? Well, they're trying. I've been struck by the number of central banks in emerging economies who have cut interest rates, even though their currencies have been tumbling uh, during this crisis. Uh, Some of them have even started buying bonds, which is the sort of quantitative easing, if you like, although they dislike that term. The governments tend to have less fiscal firepower at their disposal. 
by and large, the packages have been stingy. And there's also questions about the mechanism for distributing whatever aid they wish to provide. If you think very sort of traditional forms of social security or of aid in emerging economies tend to bring people together. And you think of uh, soup kitchens or public work sites. Uh, that's obviously something that people are trying to avoid. But it's not clear what the good alternative is. And how big a risk are we talking here and and which countries in particular are facing it? I suppose those most heavily indebted are facing the biggest challenges. Yes, so there were a number of poor countries that were at risk of debt distress even before this crisis. These include uh, places like Tajikistan, a number of small emerging economies. And then there are some much more prominent emerging economies where this crisis could put them over the edge. Uh, Many people are worried about South Africa, for example, which has been struggling with a difficult uh, fiscal situation for some time now, lost its investment grade rating. This is a much more sophisticated, wealthier emerging economy. But because of that, it's much more uh, exposed, if you like, to foreign capital flows. It's seen its currency drop, and it's going to struggle to refinance its debts, given how hostile markets have turned. And Simon, I suppose the main sources of outside help are the usual suspects, the multilateral institutions. Is that right? Yes, and especially uh, the IMF. Uh, In particular, it's been pushing a couple of quite interesting uh, proposals, currency swap lines and special drawing rights. Now, both of those are quite technical terms, but let me try and briefly uh, define each. With a swap line, uh, a central bank in one of the richer countries, such as America, uh, offers to swap its currency for an emerging market currency. Uh, Now, obviously, that can be quite risky. So the IMF has proposed it might help take on some of that risk, uh, helping to protect the reluctant rich world central banks. Uh, The other novel proposal is uh, special drawing rights, or SDRs. And these are a claim on the reserves of, again, richer, stronger nations. So all members of the IMF would get these rights in proportion to their contribution to the fund. And then if they got into trouble, they could swap the special drawing rights for dollars, euros or yen uh, from the IMF's stronger members. Now, we don't know if either of these proposals will actually uh, pass the IMF board, but they're talking about them. And both of these tools, uh, swap lines and SDRs, play quite a big role in helping emerging economies survive the global financial crisis. And so there's hope that they can play a similar role this time when the need is, if anything, even greater. I interviewed Joseph Stiglitz, a Nobel laureate and former chief economist of the World Bank, now at Columbia University. In the past, he's been a trenchant critic of the IMF. But over the last decade and a half, he thinks the institution has transformed itself and he's hopeful it will play an important role in fighting the pandemic. I don't think the world has fully fathomed how deep the impact is going to be on emerging markets. This is where the need for money becomes very large. And the SDR is a tool that can be very, very effective. I mean, the criticism that's uh, levelled at this this response is that you know unless you create some sort of special mechanism for the rich countries reallocating their SDRs to the poor countries, you'd have to do a very big issuance to make much difference for small countries that have small quotas, right? Because the SDRs are increased in proportion to your quota. So, for example, if you did an SDR issuance that did not have some sort of mechanism for linking rich country SDRs to poor country SDRs. Would it still be worth doing? You know, if they had a half trillion dollar SDR issuance, some 40% would go to the emerging markets. That's $200 billion that the emerging markets don't have. So that itself would be worth doing. But I hope that 
the advanced countries, many of them at least, would recognize it's in their own self-interest to contribute the SDRs to the, the poorest countries without putting budgetary pressure on their own governments. How would this work with swap lines? Do you see them as sort of potentially alternatives? Do you see them as complementary? Do you see them as different ways to achieve the same end? I view them as complementary. Swap lines are really a mechanism that enables countries to meet a short-term liquidity problem. It's not in any way enhancing their long-run ability to expand their spending. And it means that if they were to spend more today to respond to the crisis, they'd have to spend less tomorrow. You know, the uh, United States, you just go ahead and overnight increase spending by 10% of GDP, as I mentioned before, when it already had about a 5% of GDP deficit. Emerging markets can't do that. That's part of the privilege of being a reserve currency, uh, but it's partly a reflection of that we borrow in dollars, uh, partly a reflection of our overall strength. So the emerging markets in developing countries, their currencies are already weak. The interest rates at which they borrow are already rising. And so they and their economies are going to be plummeting. So their ability to respond to the crisis will be very, very limited unless we have an SDR. Do you see a role for the IMF in helping to facilitate a broader range of swap lines? Yes, I, I, I do. You know, the IMF stands for International Monetary Fund, you know, an international organization that's been set up in a way to facilitate coordination among monetary authorities. In the past, we've relied more on bilateral, and that might have been appropriate in times when there were crises that affected uh, particular countries. But this is a global crisis that will almost inevitably affect almost all countries. There needs to be a multilateral response, and the IMF has the capabilities of engineering that. You've been obviously uh, very critical of the IMF uh, in the past. How much confidence do you have in the IMF now to rise to this challenge? A great deal. In fact, I've been amazed, uh, impressed at the transformation of the International Monetary Fund over the past decade and a half. This is no longer just a advanced country institution. It's a global, it's an international institution, having a much stronger voice from many of the countries that were not adequately heard before. So, Simon, do you agree with Mr. Stiglitz's assessment there? Are emerging economies going to have access to the finance they need to cope with the costs of a pandemic? So it says it's going to use its full lending capacity of about a trillion dollars. Now, even that vast number might not be enough to meet all of the possible claims on its resources, all of the possible needs of emerging economies. And the other problem is that different tools are suitable for different emerging economies. Uh, Some of the most flexible tools that can be uh, distributed very quickly, that carry very few conditions, are only really geared towards the stronger emerging economies. And some of the poorer economies, therefore, will have to take on a traditional IMF program that comes with quite a lot of oversight and might take some time to formulate. And in general, Simon, I suppose this time the rich world is so preoccupied with its own troubles that 
is enough attention being given to the economic worries that face poorer countries now? I think it's true that the rich world is so preoccupied with its own medical response, it can't provide uh, some traditional forms of aid. We've already seen reports, for example, of America's aid agency having to divert exports of medical kit back to the United States itself. But on the financial side, a lot of rich countries have become, one has to say, quite adventurous, quite liberal uh, in their use of financial tools. And clearly with this pandemic, the rich world has a stake in the emerging world seeing it off successfully. Nowhere in the world is going to be safe until everywhere in the world is safe. Simon Cox, thanks very much. And our thanks also to Joseph Stiglitz. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The unicorns are in trouble. Although the name was intended to denote wonder and rarity, by 2019, privately held technology firms valued at over $1 billion dollars were no longer such rare beasts. There were over 200 of them in America alone. But their existence has proved precarious. Even before the outbreak of COVID-19, life for unicorn companies was already losing its sheen. In May 2019, Uber's blockbuster IPO priced at 30% below what the company's investment bankers had promised. And in October, office sharing company WeWork scrapped its IPO. Its valuation went from $47 billion to less than $8 billion, sending shockwaves around Silicon Valley. And now a reckoning is coming. It had just become a sort of a badge of honour and, and the ultimate target in Silicon Valley to become a unicorn. Tamsin Booth is The Economist's technology and business editor. From the mood of euphoria around them from up to 2018, 2019, you then had quite a big correction the so-called smart money in Silicon Valley had turned cautious and was going to particular kinds and not others. Of course, now we've got a massive shock in terms of COVID and um, financial market volatility, which has really shut off the IPO exit for these 200 American unicorns. Even so, looking at how the unicorns as a species respond to COVID-19 and the effect it has on them, some you would actually expect to do quite well, wouldn't you? Some of these remote apps relying on delivery services and so on. I mean, some obviously ride-hailing services, Airbnb and accommodation services like that are going to be badly hit. But won't there be some that actually profit from the live-at-home environment we're all in now? That's absolutely right. I mean, it's fascinating to see that the whole technology shift, e-commerce, digital payments, remote working, shifts that were already underway and that the unicorns were taking advantage of in many cases are going to be vastly accelerated. So I know that one big UK company is saying that e-commerce adoption in the UK by the broad population it would something that would have taken five years. Now it's going to happen in 12 months. So you're just going to get technology adoption, new technology adoption rates are going to soar. I think it's still very much to be seen who the winners and losers will be, though. 
so, you know, famously you have Airbnb with its bookings in big European and American cities down by 40% or so. You've got scooter startups that are basically having to pull their products off the street. Food delivery companies are seeing great upside, but on the other hand, restaurants are shutting as well. So I think it's going to take a while to, to see some of the big winners. And of course, companies like Slack, Snowflake, enterprise software, remote working, remote conferencing type firms will benefit immensely. But I think across the board, there is going to be much more sobriety around valuations. In the VC community generally, I mean, how do they now look at unicorns? Are they, they're all presumably sitting on their hands for the next few months? Well, I think quite a few in the venture capital community are you know, they're looking back at the boom and some of its excesses and sort of reflecting on how it went. And it's always fun to look back on the, on the excesses, I think. So they're starting to talk about all the lavish perks that these unicorns had, the sort of the five selections of Thai curry, the endless varieties of sparkling water, the moonshot projects that bore very little relation to the core business. So at the moment, they're sort of taking a hard look at all that stuff and getting companies to cut back and focus on profits. So what was the valuation based on? Was it smoke and mirrors? Well, the first thing to note is that these are private companies. They release very little information. You get lots of reports about what revenues are, you know, how soon they might reach profitability. But there's really a dearth of information about the underlying numbers. So the valuations become more a function of the amount of capital that wants to get into them. But you also have something called the secondary market for unicorn shares, where company insiders, rank and file employees, senior executives, they who know who really know what's going on with firms, they can sell their shares in private startups to those who want to get into them. And what's really interesting is that you often get big discrepancies between the price in the secondary market and the actual paper valuation. So that's quite a clue. But it's it's just a really opaque area. I mean, it's private for a reason. So it's quite hard to see what fair values really are. And you mentioned profitability, which is quite a, a rare thing for a lot of these companies, isn't it? I mean, are we seeing a new focus on that? Is that what investors are going to be looking at in future? Yes, you've had a, again, it's just one of those really enjoyable phenomenons of the end of a boom, the way people's mindsets just shift overnight. And you get the herd of investors stampeding from one thing into another. In the case of unicorns, it was all about growth, growth at all costs, who gives a fig about profits. And that really has shifted in a matter of weeks. I mean, it was after the WeWork implosion, the failed IPO. Now it's not fear of missing out it's fear of looking stupid, and it's profits at all costs. What sort of survival rate do you expect to see Tamsin out of this shake-up? I mean, is this uh, an echo of the dot-com bubble, what, two decades ago now, where very few of the startups then survived, a lot got either bought out or closed shop altogether? Yes, a lot of people have been making that prediction that 20 years on, this is another sort of shakeout of that kind of scale. I think there are really important differences, though. With the dot-com lot, you didn't have the sort of dial-up, dial-down type cloud computing services available. Um, The costs of launching a business model and starting to sell to customers were much, much higher compared to now. So the dot-com crowd had much higher costs 
they didn't have anything like the size of revenues that many unicorns do. So I don't think you're going to get that sort of wipeout. I mean, broadly, I think that, you know, veteran founders reckon that maybe half of the 200 American unicorns are actually unicorns. Because in a lot of cases, founders sort of took particular money in return for particular protections just to get them over the line of being a unicorn. So probably only half of them are actually unicorns. And then a rough rule of thumb is probably that perhaps a third of them will still do really well. A third of them will do okay. But I think you're going to see a large number of cases where you either get takeovers at a steep discount to current valuations or you'll get lots of consolidation you'll get lots of them lots of them will be taken over at fairly undemanding prices Tamsin thank you very much thank you and that's all for this episode of Money Talks don't forget to rate us on Apple Podcasts I'm Simon Long in London this is The Economist mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.